Welcome to the Conversations That Matter podcast. My name is John Harris, and today I have with me a very special guest, Mark Hall, uh, who works at George Fox, and he uh, has written a number of publications, academic publications on history. He's a distinguished professor of politics there. And uh, Mark, your most recent book, can I, can I call you Mark? I'm sorry, Dr. Hall. Oh, absolutely. No, no, call me Mark, please. <laughs> Mark, uh, your most recent book is Did America Have a Christian Founding? And I'm intrigued by this. Um, the timing of it, I think, couldn't not have been better. What inspired you to write this? Well, I've been working in this area for about 25 years. I've done a number of academic books, as you've uh, mentioned. And I've decided that at this stage of my career, I want to try to bring these arguments to the general reading public. And so this is my first book aimed at the reading public. It's published by Nelson Books. It's very accessible, although fully documented. And basically, I hope to convince my fellow Americans that America had a Christian founding, and this is very good news for all of us. Why is that good news? Because I think some secularists might think that's horrible news that America might have had a Christian founding. That's right. So what I argue is that America's founders drew from Christian ideas when they designed their constitutional order. And so just to give a few examples, uh, America's founders to a person believe that humans are created in the image of God, the Imago Dei, and therefore should be worthy of, should be treated with respect and dignity. They believe that humans were sinful, and so the national government should be strictly limited in power, and power should be separated and checked. And I could go on and on, but those are two examples. And so today, with all the change, we still live under this constitutional order that I think very health, in a very healthy way limits power and checks power, and thus has prevented the nation from sliding into tyranny. As well, I argue that America's founders embraced a very robust understanding of religious liberty, because of their Christian convictions. And this is a, uh, an understanding of religious liberty that includes Muslims and Jews and atheists. And so really everyone should be happy that America's founders embrace this very broad understanding of religious liberty. Now, I don't know if you caught uh, the video. I know I had sent you a link of Ron Reagan doing a promo for the, I think it was the Freedom From Religion Foundation during the last Democratic debate. Hi, I'm Ron Reagan, an unabashed atheist, and I'm alarmed by the intrusions of religion into our secular government. That's why I'm asking you to support the Freedom From Religion Foundation, the nation's largest and most effective association of atheists and agnostics, working to keep state and church separate, just like our founding fathers intended. Please support the Freedom From Religion Foundation. Ron Reagan, lifelong atheist, not afraid of burning in hell. Um, what, what do you make of someone like Ron Reagan who just claims that? And it, it seems to be something that everyone buys, especially on the left. Mm -hmm. No, that's exactly right. So um, I have an entire chapter dedicated to the question, did America's founders desire to separate church and state or create a wall of separation between church and state? And the answer is no, absolutely not. Even Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, who wanted a, a greater degree of separation between church and state, did not desire to build a wall of separation, even though Jefferson uses that term in a letter to the Danbury Baptist. For instance, let me just give you one story. The Literally two days after Jefferson drafted the letter to the Danbury Baptist, he went to church services at the U.S. Capitol building, where he heard John Leland, the great Baptist itinerant minister, and himself an opponent of established churches, preach. Jefferson also made the War Department and the Treasury Department buildings available for church services. 
And so again, I want to concede that Jefferson wanted a greater degree of separation between church and state than, than did most founders. But even he did not act as if there was a wall of separation between church and state. And when we turn from Jefferson and Madison to the rest of the founders, there is utterly no evidence that they desired the sort of wall of separation. Now, they clearly were turning against established churches, but they opposed established churches for exactly the same reason you and I would oppose them today. They believe that when governments run churches, this is very bad for the church. So we need to keep the government out of the business of running churches. But presidents can issue calls for prayer and fasting. Legislatures can hire leg legislative chaplains and on and on. There's all sorts of ways in which it's appropriate for the church and the state to cooperate. They just do not want an established official state church. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Do you think part of the misunderstanding about this uh, might have to do with the expansion of national governmental powers, the uh, incorporation doctrine, so forth and so on. Because I, I think at the time you had mentioned nine of the 13 states had official churches at the time of the ratification of the Constitution. And, and now I think it's assumed that the national government uh, is, we just think of the national government, we don't think of states as being involved in religion at all, but they were. Absolutely. And the First Amendment, as you know, reads, Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion clearly and indisputably only a restriction on the national government. Through the doctrine of incorporation, through the 14th Amendment, this is now binding on the states. And I do think it has substantive content. This means that today, Virginia, Alabama, California cannot create an official established church. But there's still all sorts of rooms to have a voucher program that parents can use to send their children to private religious schools. Governors can issue calls for prayer and fasting. You can have legislative chaplains, prayer before legislative, legislative sessions, and on and on you go. Now, we can debate the prudence of these things, but what I want to argue and what I do argue is that there's no constitutional barrier to states or the national government doing these sorts of things. Now, I, I want to ask you about something. Uh, someone actually sent me an article from the Gospel Coalition that uh, they did not know I was doing an interview with you. But there was an author there, uh, another historian who had taken issue uh, with your book, and he made the assertion that you were interpreting everything that the founders said and did according to the assumption that they were Christians, and subsequently anointing the institutions that they established as Christians. And I did not get that from your book. I was hoping, though, maybe you could respond to that, because there does seem to be some questions about what constitutes a Christian nation. Um, do they all have to be Orthodox Christians, which I think this author was trying to say that that would be a Christian nation, or, or what's the barometer that we use? Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. So this is my friend, and I do consider him to be a friend, Greg Frazier of the Master's College. But in all honesty, I think he simply misreads a book. In the introduction, I explore a variety of different reasons uh, that we might say America had a Christian founding. And I consider, the very first thing I consider is would America's founders have identified themselves as Christians? And I say yes, 98% um, Protestant, 2% Roman Catholic, about 2,000 Jews. But then I go on to say that's not an interesting finding. I then suggest it might be more interesting if we could show that they were all sincere Christians or Orthodox Christians, 
But I then clearly say that we don't have the records to demonstrate that one way or the other. Now we can with some founders, but with many founders, there just simply is not the records to show it. And so in my book, I do not argue that all of America's founders were sincere Orthodox Christians. I argue that they were informed by Christian ideas. And this to me is a far more interesting claim because of course it's possible that a nominal Christian might be influenced by non-Christian ideas. And it's also possible that someone who is, um, you know, maybe not even a person of faith might still be influenced by Christian ideas. And so I focus on the influence of Christian ideas, such as the fact that humans are created in Imago Dei, the image of God, that they're sinful, that they embrace a, a Christian conception of liberty, that is the freedom to do what is right, not the freedom to do what is wrong. And this is how America had a Christian founding. So the review just totally misreads a book. One of the other things that in, in this review said it, but it, it's actually a broader discussion, which is why I want you to comment on it, is the influence of Enlightenment thinkers like John Locke. And I think one of the things you mentioned is Locke actually, he, he's kind of downstream from a lot of biblical ideas. He's taking them and he's applying them, maybe not giving the, the Bible verses for the different ideas he's advocating. But I've always thought that someone like a John Calvin, like a, theologians, um, had influence the culture so much that people like John Locke were picking up these concepts and that was an extension of Christian influence. But secularists want to say that, no, that's separate. And I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Sure. Well, there is an entire cottage industry debating how to properly read John Locke. Some people read him as a secularist who kind of hides his very secular ideas with Bible verses and theological language. Other people, and I'm sympathetic to this camp, read him as being far more compatible with Orthodox Christianity. I think part of the problem is a lot of political philosophers don't read Calvin or Ponet or Goodman or these other earlier Calvinists. And Locke is writing in this tradition. His father was a Puritan, an English Puritan. And even if he himself was not an Orthodox Christian, I think he probably was not, um, one could certainly still read him as being very influenced by this idea. But however we read Locke, I think it's indisputably the case that the few Americans who read him in the 18th century read him as being compatible with Christianity. And so I don't think there's any tension at all between a founder who might cite the Bible and then cite Locke. They simply did not see the two in conflict. I think you had mentioned a statistic, which um, I believe you, you might have gotten it from Daniel Dreisbach. I'm not sure, but uh, the percentage of quotations the founders used, and it was overwhelmingly biblical. And, and that was a conservative estimate um, as far as I can. I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head, um, but that was fascinating to me. Just overwhelmingly biblical language being used at the Constitutional Convention. Sure. Well, there's two things going on. My friend Daniel Dreisbach has written a book, Reading the Bible with the Founding Fathers, and he shows that America's founders were well-versed in the Bible. They regularly referenced it. They regularly quoted it. They oftentimes did not include the biblical citations. So we oftentimes, secular scholars anyway, don't pick up on this. The study I reference, though, is by Donald Lutz, and he did a content analysis of a whole bunch of political literature from the founding era, and he simply looked at citations. Who are the founders citing? And he finds that about 32% of these citations are to the Bible. Something like 18% are to all Enlightenment thinkers combined. And so this would be your Locke, your Montesquieu, your Smith, your Bakari. And so they are far more likely to cite the Bible than all the Enlightenment thinkers. And Locke, of course, is only a fraction of the Enlightenment thinkers. 
And I think, and I say in the book that this understates this quotations to the Bible, because oftentimes the founders do not include the citation. They do not include Micah 4.4 or Micah 6.8. And so biblically illiterate scholars just miss these quotations. Yeah, that's excellent. And, and that, yeah, that is the study I was thinking of. Um, I think I, I just associated it with Dreisbach because he also quotes that in his book. He as does. Well. There's two uh, objections, um, as far as I can tell, two major ones in modern Christian circles uh, to, to discredit the founding fathers and objections to perhaps the thesis you're advocating. The first one, I think, is on the Romans 13 issue on they, they had a revolution. How could they have done so when that's in violation of Romans 13? I'd like to hear what you because you said some really good things at Liberty University when I was there on this. Sure. So I actually address this in the conclusion to my book, in the draft of the conclusion. Uh, but then I suggested to my publisher, I addressed it in about five pages. I said, you know, this really could be a chapter in and of itself. And so we agreed that I would take that out of the conclusion and put it in a sequel to the book that I'm working on now. So what I argue in, the, in this fully fleshed out chapter is that the church did indeed interpret Romans 13 for about 12, 1300 years to say that Christians cannot revolt against governing authorities. However, some Catholic scholars in the um, 13th century started thinking, well, does Romans 13 really refer to a tyrant or is it referring to a just ruler? And they started toying around with the idea that maybe a tyrant could be resisted. The Protestant reformers picked this up and run with it. So John Calvin is among the more conservative of the Calvinists on this question. And he says that inferior magistrates clearly have the power to resist a tyrant. But even as Calvin is writing this, you got John Knox up in Scotland saying the people themselves may resist a tyrant. And so the way the biblical argument works, I, I've already suggested it, but just to make sure it's clear, is that Romans 13 refers to the just ruler. If you have a ruler who is unjust, a ruler who routinely punishes good people and rewards bad people, this is not the sort of ruler that must be respected and obeyed. And the people may, and perhaps even have a duty, to resist him. And so America's founders, 50 to 75% are Calvinists. They're coming out of this tradition. They're coming out of the tradition of the English Civil War with the Puritans, of course, the English Puritans resisted what they considered to be an, an unjust king. Um, this is in the air. Now, someone like Greg Frazier simply thinks that all these folks are wrong. And he has a right to that opinion. Absolutely, he does. But I think a bit more charitable of an interpretation, incidentally, I think that the reformers have it right in this respect. But at a minimum, we can say that these folks had very good reasons for believing that resisting an unjust ruler, a tyrant, is both biblical and just. Yeah, I, I would add to that, too, just from a theological standpoint. It, it seems to me that the instructions in Romans 13 are being given to individuals it, living in culture. It's not being given to lesser magistrates, uh, which a lot of these royal colonies and so forth, they would have been their own governments resisting. So you were under the authority of, of the local government. And which one do you submit to, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, it, and the word diakonos is used there, too, the word for deacon. The government is a servant, a minister of God. Uh, and, and so there, it seems like there's a function, a spiritual function that the government's um, supposed to be um, a role that they have. And in a church, if a deacon does not meet qualifications, well, they, they're not a deacon anymore, right? And so I, I've never had a problem with this, really, but I, I understand why people do on, on a cursory you know, reading of Romans 13. Um, but I appreciate you weighing in on that very clearly. Uh, the other question that comes up a lot is, 
and it's an objection really is, well, the founding fathers did not immediately abolish slavery. It's a, an embarrassing thing to admit, but the people who wrote the Constitution did not understand that slavery was a bad thing and did not respect civil rights. So how could they have been Christians? And you, I think, gave a really good answer to this uh, at Liberty when you were speaking, but this question came up three times, so it's on a lot of folks' minds. I was hoping you could talk about that. Sure. I actually addressed three issues in the conclusion of my book, and slavery was one of the three, just like rebellion. And I pulled that from my book, and I put it in the sequel. I think that is the most solid objection. Uh, but I think a little context is necessary. Almost all societies have embraced slavery. All Christian societies embrace slavery. By the time you get to the late 18th century, the unique thing is many founders were coming to oppose slavery. Something like six to eight of the states voluntarily abolished slavery between 1776 and 1804. Um, there are founders who understand this is an unjust institution. I think Southerners generally are so bought into the institution that they fight it um, with you know, dragging their feet, tooth and nail, and this sort of thing. But even they, I think, have an understanding that in some ways this is an unjust institution. Thomas Jefferson, the slave owner, um, he writes in his notes on the state of Virginia that I tremble when I remember that God is just and his justice will not remain abated forever, something to that effect. So Jefferson seems to understand that slavery is unjust. And yet he was so addicted to the goods that came from slavery, the goods for him, the wine and the Monticello and this sort of thing, that he could not bring himself to release many of his slaves. He released a few of them. And so I think one could critique America's founders on the issue of slavery. I do think that my argument does not require that America's founders were perfect Christian statesmen. We can recognize that everyone falls short. You fall short, I fall short, Jerry Falwell falls short. We all fall short in one way or the other. My argument is that America's founders were profoundly influenced by Christian ideas, not that they were perfect. And one of the things that I, I, you know, I think you had mentioned this at Liberty um, that they tried to do was progressively uh, get rid of the institution by making the slave trade itself illegal by 1808. And so there, there does seem to be an understanding there um, in all parts of the country that we need to somehow do something about this, but we don't know how to get rid of it immediately. Is that a fair reading? Oh, absolutely. So the Constitution says that slave, international slave trade cannot be made illegal until 1808. That was a concession to the slave states. Um, as soon as 1808 came around, actually in 1807, Thomas Jefferson encouraged Congress to ban the slave trade, and Congress did do this, the international slave trade. So after 1808, it's illegal to bring humans from Africa to America. Now, you still have an internal slave trade. Right. The slaves from Virginia are sold down to Louisiana and that sort of thing. But I think this is a good example of how really everyone recognized that slavery was a bad thing. It was an evil thing. It's not until about the 1820s or 1830s that anyone argued that slavery is a positive good. So again, almost everyone in the 18th century, everyone saw that slavery was an evil. The only question is what to do about it. Right. And, that, and that's a practical uh, question, really, more than anything else. Um, so yeah, that, that's really good. I, uh, what advice do you have for, um, I'm going to say Christian specifically, students who want to get into the historical field or the political field, and uh, they want to study the founding fathers? Um, I, I'd be curious to hear maybe what sources they should be reading, how should they be approaching these men? 
Yeah, I think indisputable, you have to go to the primary sources. There's just so much nonsense in the secondary literature. And I've contributed to the secondary literature, and I'd like to think my works are not nonsense. But still, if you're interested in Roger Sherman, I have an entire book on Roger Sherman published by Oxford University Press. You might begin by reading that book, but then you should read Chris Collier's biography of Sherman, but then you have to get into the primary source documents and then use these documents to evaluate my arguments and his arguments and other arguments. So yeah, absolutely, get to the primary sources. You must do that. That's a non-negotiable as far as I'm concerned. If people want to find your book and purchase it, which I would recommend, I listened to it on Audible and uh, just really enjoyed it. Where do you want to send them? Thank you, John. That's a great question. Probably Amazon.com because they sell it at a discount. The book is listed for $26 and something, but you can buy it on Amazon for $18.42. I think that's, again, it's not really in my interest, but it's in the interest of your listeners to go to Amazon to get it. Okay, perfect. Any final thoughts you have, things you want to share? Yeah, well, I sure appreciate you, John, um, doing this podcast. And I, I, again, I would encourage folks to not take my word for it, to go to the primary sources. And yeah, now I'll leave it there. All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Hall. I really appreciate you coming on. And uh, it's an honor to speak with you. And God bless you uh, while you're doing your work. Thank you, John. It's my pleasure. All right. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.